I never imagined that I'd be standing up here again tonight, but I welcome the opportunity. And uh, like I said, it's a little bit of short notice. Uh, Shahai called me on Sunday night and asked me if I had anything, and I said, well, the only thing I can think of is maybe a little series that I had prepared last year. Uh, the church in Lebanon asked me to preach on, and I said, well, I'll just send you the list of those lessons, and you all just pick one. And so I did, and they did. And so tonight what we're going to do is give the first of that series of lessons, and uh, hopefully that it will be something satisfactory for this study here tonight and be beneficial in some way uh, to all of us in some way or another. I'd like to read from the book of Daniel to begin chapter 7 and verse 14. This is a famous passage that foretells of the coming of the kingdom, as Mike talked about earlier. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. This passage foretells of a kingdom. And of course, we've heard much about that kingdom already tonight. But what I want to call your attention to here is that it says in that second phrase there that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. Now, at the time this prophecy was delivered, of course, it was basically the Jews and one nation and one people and one language uh, that served God under the Old Testament covenant. But now, according to this prophecy, there will be those of all peoples, nations, and languages. So what I'm going to do tonight for a few minutes is invite you to consider with me some of the history about the translation of the Bible. It was written, or the part of the Bible that we have under consideration to begin with tonight anyway, was written in Hebrew, uh, the Old Testament. But that uh, Old Testament, as well as the message that it contained in seed and was developed later in the New Testament written in Greek, has now expanded to all the world, so to speak, and actually did a long time ago. I'm going to say a little bit about translation in general, first of all. Uh, the preface to the King James Version, which is unfortunate, it hasn't been printed in Bibles for over a hundred years. It should be. But uh, in that preface, in 1611, the King James translators gave the justification for making a new translation. And they said, Translation it is that openeth the window to let in the light, that breaketh the shell that we may eat the kernel that putteth aside the curtain, that we may look into the most holy place, that removeth the cover of the well, that we may come by the water." Very beautiful statement to indicate the fact that it is translation that allows us to know things that we might not otherwise be able to know. Now I'm going to present some really basic information tonight, but I'm also going to present some information that I feel like is a possibility that you're not familiar with, or if you are, maybe not really familiar with. So let me start with the really simple stuff. To begin with, the Bible, as many of you or most of you know, was essentially written in three languages. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, then part of the Old Testament, a very small part of it in fact, was written in Aramaic, which if you looked at them, you couldn't tell the difference because the script is the same. The letters are the same. It's a different language, though. And then the New Testament was written in Greek. Now, we're going to be primarily concerned tonight with the two here, Hebrew and Greek, because Aramaic is really just a small aspect of 
uh, a small part of the Old Testament scriptures. But I'm going to put up on the board here something to kind of give us a sense of really what we're talking about here. Uh, Hebrew and Greek. First of all, I put the Greek language up here, and this is from an old handwritten manuscript. And if you look at that really close, and I know a lot of times when we see something strange like this, we don't look at it very closely. But let me encourage you to take a close look, and you'll notice that there are going to be things here that you're going to recognize. That looks like a B, that looks like a C. Um, up here, this looks like an H, that looks like a P. There is some similarity between the Greek alphabet and our own, and the reason for that is, is because essentially our Latin, our English alphabet comes to us from Greek through Latin. So there's a lot of similarities. But if you compare it to the Hebrew, you can search in vain on this page right here on the left to find anything that looks similar to English, that's even in any way recognizable. And I can assure you there is nothing there that is. Now, so one language in one testament, another language in another, and then what we have in our bound volumes of the Bible that we have in the pews and that we carry about is essentially a combination of those two brought from one language in one and the other language in the other into English so that it's very convenient for us to read. It's all right there in one bound volume. Now, like many of us, as I heard my professor in history say years ago in college, he said, most people and I don't think that would necessarily include this audience, but in general, most people don't know anything about history before their parents were born. And in some cases, they don't know anything about history even before they were born. And so it's important for us to, I believe, in order to us to have a good understanding of the Word of God is to have some knowledge of history. And we're all about understanding the Word of God. The Bible is a historical book written in a historical context we need to have some sense of what the history is surrounding it. And that's what I hope to, to address tonight. Not just history for history's sake, but uh, a couple of things. To illustrate, number one, the great providence of God in the revelation of truth and how that it has come down to you and me tonight. And number two, to provide some information that will help us have better insight into that book we call the Bible. Now, I just want to say, though, tonight, that Bible translation did not begin with the English Bible. And this is what I was thinking of when I said that a lot of folks don't know any history prior to the time they were born or their parents were born. And we kind of live in a vacuum. We think that, well, it's all about the English Bible and it's all about American history and English-speaking history. But the fact of the matter is, nothing could be further from the truth. In fact, the English language has only existed as a language for about a thousand years. So that means a thousand years before that, there was no English anywhere on the earth. And yet the Bible was being read by multitudes and being translated into all kinds of languages. So we're going to talk a little bit tonight about the history of Bible translation up to the English Bible. And I'm just like somebody else they mentioned last night. I forgot to push the button. So I think it was 739 when I started. Okay, so up to the English Bible, and so that's a big bite to chew in such a short time, but we're going to hit the high points here. So I'm going to start with something I like to use a lot, helps me to communicate, because I need all the help I can get. I like to use a little timeline here. 
So what I want to do is show you here over here with this uh, line is this is the, uh, the, the year zero. That would be the year, so to speak, that Jesus was born. Now that's not exactly accurate, but that's the way we count our calendar. So everything on the right is after Jesus and everything on the left is before Jesus. That's what BC and AC, AD is down there at the bottom. Now, over here, right after that uh, zero, about a third of the way down is the year 33. That's when Jesus died on the cross. And then this little 40-year period right here at the second half of the first century is when the New Testament scriptures were written in the Greek language. Now, I want to make this clear because for a good part of the lesson tonight, I'm only going to be talking about the Old Testament and then later about the New Testament. So let's just forget the New Testament for now. Uh, before A.D. 55, there are no New Testament scriptures. And so that's, what we're, that's the time frame that we're in tonight. So what we want to do to begin with tonight is notice some of the earliest indications of translation of the Bible into a different language than that which it was, in which it was written. Well, so in order to do that, we've got to go way back to the 5th century B.C., here between 400 and 500 years before Jesus Christ. We read in the book of Nehemiah, and this is uh, a number of years after the children of Israel have returned from Babylonian exile, and the Bible there tells us that the people were gathered together to hear Ezra explain the word of God, and they built a podium. As far as I know, this is the first indication of a pulpit or a podium in the, in the history of the world, I guess, or at least in the Bible. And Ezra stood up, the Bible tells us, at a wooden podium which they had made for the purpose of reading the word of God. And I'm skipping over a little here for the sake of time. It says, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And then verse 7, it says also the Levites and a whole bunch of other fellows that are named here, explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place and they read from the book from the law of God. Look here, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. This is the New American Standard Bible. And the indication here is, as some scholars believe, that what is actually going on here is that the children of Israel by this point in their history are not as good at speaking Hebrew as they one time were. They more are in line with Aramaic and speaking Aramaic, and they don't understand when someone reads the Hebrew Bible to them. Now, that's interesting because, of course, we think of the Jews as Hebrew-speaking people, and they were, but really, by the time of Christ, very few people spoke the Hebrew language. Uh, most people spoke Aramaic, or Jews, anyway, who lived in Palestine spoke Aramaic, maybe some of them some Greek, but basically, uh, uh, Hebrew was the language of the scholars and the scribes and those in that position uh, who studied the scriptures in the original language. So as we look then, this is the earliest indication that I'm aware of of translation from the language in which the Bible was written into another language when Nehemiah and the Levites translated orally. They didn't write it down in a separate volume of writing, but simply translated it orally. Now let's consider another. We're going to jump way toward the year zero now, and we're going to go back about to the middle of the first century AD, first century BC before Christ. And by then, as I said, it is really the case that most of the Jews at this point, in generally speaking, do not speak Hebrew anymore. They speak Aramaic. 
So when the, uh, whenever the rabbi would stand up in the synagogue and read from the Hebrew scriptures, then he would translate it for them into Aramaic. And when he translated it into Aramaic, this became such a common practice that they eventually wrote it down in a, in a, in a written translation. It was really more of a paraphrase than it was a translation. But they called these the Jewish Targums, and they were in the Aramaic language. So this is the, some of the earliest reference to translation of the Bible into a different language. But the one we're going to spend the most time on here for just a few minutes tonight is this one. Now we need to go back about halfway between these two to about 250 B.C. And in 250 B.C., we see there a translation is made called the Septuagint uh, around uh, 250 B.C. Now, just to give you some sort of an impression of how hugely significant it is that the Bible of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, is translated in this Septuagint translation into Greek. Let me see if I can impress upon you how significant that is. Here is a map of a good portion of the known world at that time. And that little spot right there with the arrow pointing to it is the part of the world where Hebrew was spoken. Very small, and not everyone who lived there could speak the language. Now, about 300 BC, about, 100, about 50 or almost 100 years before the Septuagint translation that I'm going to say more about in a moment was made, um, Alexander the Great spread the Greek culture and the Greek language all across the world so that by the time of Christ, the Greek language was spoken in a huge area of the world at that time, kind of represented here by the blue on the map. So you can see what a tremendous transi transition it is to take the Hebrew scriptures written in a language which very few people, relatively speaking, spoke, and translated into a language that is just everywhere by that time, especially by the time of Jesus Christ. So this Septuagint translation was really the earliest widely read Bible translation because when it was translated from Hebrew to Greek, that means that people all over the Roman Empire and all over the Mediterranean before the empire became an empire were able to read, if they wanted to, they could access the Old Testament Jewish scriptures in a language that they understood. So that widely read translation, as I've said, is the Septuagint. Now that's kind of a big, long, tongue-full, <laughs> mouthful, uh, a tongue twister, I'm trying to say, as I get tongue twisted <laughs> trying to say it. <laughs> uh, the Septuagint is really just a fancy word. It comes from Latin. It's the actually comes from Septuaginta, which is the Latin word for the number 70. And the reason for that is, is because traditionally, or at least by the legend of the story that surrounds the uh, origin of this translation, there were about 70 Jewish translators who made this translation. And so they call it the 70, or the uh, Septuagint. And sometimes in commentaries and reference books, you'll see it referenced here as just LXX, the Roman numeral L for 50, X for 10, X for 10 equals 70. So the translation of the Septuagint uh, is hugely significant, as I hope to impress upon your minds. So I want to say a little about the origin of the Septuagint. And what I'm going to present here is a version of the story that really most historians and scholars today consider to be 
probably more legend than fact. But even though that's the case, really to understand or to know the story of the Septuagint, we need to know something of that legend just to be acquainted with it while recognizing that all of the facts may not be completely historical. It's just this uh, rather uh, uh, elaborate story that comes down through the centuries. So the idea is, or the concept is, that the Septuagint translation originated in Alexandria, Egypt. Now let's just put ourselves kind of in perspective here. Uh, there's the Mediterranean with uh, Egypt down there at the bottom. And we have Jerusalem over here in Palestine. If you were to take out walking uh, about 600 miles over here to the, to the delta, you would, get to, um, you would get to Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria was built by Alexander the Great. That's why it sounds like his name. He named, named the place after him. There were Alexandrias all over the world back then where he built a town and named it after himself. But this city here was a massive city, a big, large metropolis. And around 250 BC, about that time, after the Babylonian exile and uh, after that period of time, not all Jews returned back to the land of Palestine. So a Jewish population of about 200,000 people lived in Alexandria at that time. And many of them, if not most of them, spoke Greek. We think all the Jews spoke Hebrew. They didn't. Some could not speak it at all, and some only spoke Greek, depending on where they lived and where they grew up. Because after the exile, uh, they were scattered all over the world. But in Alexandria, there was a great library. It's famous to this very day. A very famous library, which, built, which uh, unfortunately burnt a few centuries later, losing hundreds of thousands of volumes of books and all kinds of history. But anyway... There at that city of Alexandria, where that great library was, the king of Egypt at that time wanted a copy of every book in the world in his library. He thought, I'm going to build the biggest and the greatest library that's ever been made. And so this man by the name of King Ptolemy II Philadelphus, uh, about, uh, he reigned in the mid-3rd century B.C., uh, he commissioned one of his main men, uh, Demetrius of Phaleron, who was the royal librarian. Now, this is a prestigious position. This is not just some uh, job. This man is, a, is an important man in the kingdom under Ptolemy. And Ptolemy brings him into the office one day and says, you know, Demetrius, what I want to do is I want to get a copy of every book in the world. And what I want you to do is I want you to go out and I want you to purchase a copy of every book you can get your hand on because I want this library to be the best in the world. Now, uh, and if you can't find a copy to buy, hire some copyists and have it copied. I want it, I want it in my library. So uh, that's exactly what he did. So this actually included then the Hebrew scriptures. There are 200,000 Jews in Alexandria. He certainly knows about their scriptures, and he knows something a little, I suppose, about some of their history. He wants that book in his library. But since no, new, no Jew knew Hebrew, or no person rather, knew Hebrew, but the Jews, it, they, they couldn't just uh, copy it, but they had to translate it in order to make it accessible to the people. So in order to do that, he had it translated, and so he commissioned it to be translated into Greek, and uh, that's exactly uh, what ended up happening. Now, this story, and there's more of it as we go along, like I said, it's a little bit legendary, as we'll illustrate in a moment. 
But anyway, uh, again, what we're talking about, just so that we're clear on what we're saying, and I guess maybe I've made this point clear enough already, but here on the left is Hebrew in, uh, in modern typeface, and on the right is Greek. So again, obviously, we're talking about taking the Old Testament as it was originally written over here in, this, uh, in these words, and then putting it into another language that looks something like that over there. So, and, and in order that lots of people can read and access the Old Testament. So, uh, Demetrius then, the librarian, wrote a letter to Eleazar, the high priest in Jerusalem, and requested, or Eleazar requested, six elders of each Jewish tribe to come to Egypt to translate the Old Testament into Greek. You got 12 tribes of Israel, and you have six from each, then you have 72 scholars who come to Egypt and they work on this translation according to this legendary story. And then, while they are there, when they get there, they put them up in the lighthouse at Pharos, which is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And while there, we're told that these translators were closeted on the island of Pharos, near the seashore where the famous 100 meter high lighthouse was recently completed, that seventh or one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the tradition, the legendary story says that they finished that translation in 72 days. And when they went in to complete the translation, why they separated into companies and some of them translated here, some of them translated there, and then they came and got back together. And when they did, amazingly, everyone's work agreed. There was no dis discrepancy among them. Well, that's part of the story that a lot of people consider to be legendary, and I think there's some reason to, to put some credence in that interpretation of the story. But this is kind of the story of the origin of the Septuagint translation. Okay? So, uh, I don't know what I've done here, but I've sort of, let me find where I am here. So this translation then came to be called the Septuagint because of the 72 scholars, or if you round it down to 70, uh, who made the translation. And so, as I said, they divided into translation committees and supposedly they perfectly agreed when they got back together. But the truth is, as scholars now go back and look at what still remains of old, old manuscript copies of this translation, and a lot of other historical evidence, they come to the conclusion that the work was probably completed in parts over a long period of time and maybe not even within the same century. It may have took a, an extended time to complete this translation. And in fact, in comparing different books of the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, uh, the translation result varies in quality. Some of it is better than others. And, moreover, let's be careful that we don't fall into the trap of thinking it as, of it as just a, a bound volume that was published and issued all in one book from the very start. Because in reality, even as the New Testament was, most of the time it was probably translated, excuse me, copied a book at a time, and you may have only had a copy of a book here or a copy of a book there, but not the whole volume. And it went through various revisions over periods of time. In the first century, uh, Theodosian revised it, then another, Aquila, in about A.D. 130, and then another revision in uh, the early third century or close to the end of the second century uh, with Symmachus doing a revision. 
Now today, you can get on Amazon.com and you can order a copy of the Septuagint. And basically what it means is, is they pulled, a, uh, pulled all these books together and um, created a volume to be sold and, and printed off the printing press uh, for, people to, uh, for people to read and understand uh, today. And what, what you see here is a page from it right here. You've got the Greek on this side and a lot of times what you'll get also is an English translation over here on this side. Now. All of this is interesting stories, and all of it may be interesting history, but, but you may be asking the question, well, why does this matter to little old me here in Missouri in the 21st century? Well, that's what I want to try to impress upon you tonight, is to give you some sense of just how much of a debt we actually owe to these developments in history, which I believe are providential. Why does any of this matter to me? Well, first of all, let me go down a quick list here. First of all, this Greek translation of the Old Testament was used by Greek-speaking Jews all over the Roman Empire. So that when Paul goes out to this city, that city, or another city, where's the first place he go? He goes, but to the synagogue. And in many of the cities of the empire, in that synagogue or those synagogues, they were reading that translation of the Old Testament. They were reading the Greek Septuagint translation. This is maybe number two. Number two is maybe more significant, and that is that the apostles quoted from the Septuagint translation. Now, I know most of us don't turn through a Greek New Testament and look at it very closely if we ever do at all. But if you ever do, what you're going to see as you turn through, it's all Greek. There's no Hebrew. There, I know, it's all Greek to me, I know. <laughs> but when you turn through it, they aren't, where they quote the Old Testament, there's not a Hebrew passage there inserted in a Greek paragraph. And the reason for that is, is because they're quoting from a translation. And I might add, they're quoting from an imperfect translation, a status of that translation which everyone recognizes today. The Septuagint is by far not a perfect translation. And as I said, some parts of it are better than others, and some parts of it are really not very good at all. And yet the apostles quoted from it because they knew that was what their readers could know the Word of God by, and thus they quoted it. As I said, beyond the time of the New Testament scriptures, it was the Old Testament of the Greek-speaking early church for centuries after the time of Christ. It became the basis, moreover, as we'll see in a little bit, for other Old Testament translation into other languages besides Hebrew or Greek. And then, here's a point worth considering that we'll say a little more about in a moment. It became the entrenched tradi tradition, and to change it was controversial, to the point of riots in cities. If you think the translation issue today is controversial, Imagine riots in the city. Let me give you one more reason why you care about this. Have you ever been reading a passage in the New Testament, in the King James, New King James, or whatever, say Matthew 12 and verse 20, and it says, quoting from the Old Testament, a bruised reed he shall not break, and smoking flax he will not quench till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name Gentiles will trust. 
you think, well, I'm going to go back in the Old Testament. I'm going to read. I want to see what that says back. I want to go read it back there. So you go back, and you go back to the passage in Isaiah 42, and you start reading, a bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth, and the coastlands shall wait for his law. And you ever wonder, well, why? Why is it different? Why is this wording not the same? I mean, if it were a little bit different, I could see maybe something maybe is okay, but why is it so much different? Well, the reason is, is because this is what the Hebrew says, and this is what the Septuagint says. The translate, uh, the, rather, the author of the New Testament is, is, is quoting from a translation of the Hebrew. So there's an extra step between the Hebrew of the original and the English. I mean, you go from Hebrew to Greek, and then from Greek to English. And as you make those steps, there's going to be some differences. Now, it's also true that in the Septuagint, there are some things that to this day defy scholars as to why they translated it that way. But even yet, often the apostles or authors of the New Testament Quote them. Here's another really quickly here, Romans 9:27. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved, will be saved. But if you go back to Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 22, where the author's quoting, for through your people, O Israel, though your people, O Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant of them will return. And again, the reason for that difference is because of that step, that extra um, that extra step that the Septuagint translation brings to the table whenever it comes to the wording of these passages of Scripture. And there's all kinds of this in the New Testament. So if we are aware then of what's going on and why these kinds of things are occurring, at least part of the time, I don't think all the time, but why these kinds of things have ha are happening, then it's not quite as jarring or confusing to us when we go back and compare an Old Testament passage that seems to be worded a little differently than it is in the New Testament. Okay? So those are some of the things about the Septuagint translation. And I've very hurriedly gone over them, and I confess that I can't see that clock back there, so maybe, what, i got 15 minutes? Okay, well, that's probably about enough. Okay, so what I want to do now <clears throat> is invite you to consider with me the origins of other translations of the New Testament. And what I want to do now is not just look at the Old Testament. I want to look at the Old and the New Testament. So I want to be sure you're following with me that we're making that, shifting those gears now, so that we're coming now to the time of the New Testament and afterward. And what happened after that period of time, which shows to me even a greater fulfillment of the great prophecy of Daniel with which we began this series, uh, or rather this lesson. Okay, so let me throw a map up here of the Mediterranean world and basically the Roman Empire. And so I'm going to put uh, a timeline up here to the left. So the first century, that's the century of this biblical history with which we're so much familiar, that at that time the Greek New Testament was written approximately in that area of the empire right there, in general. Now, not all of it right there, but basically there. Now, that was the writing of the scripture for that first century of time. 
So we have to go on past the year 100 into the second century where we find out from history that there was actually a translation made into Latin. Now that makes sense, doesn't it? It's the Roman Empire. And even though it's the Roman Empire, they still speak Greek all over the place, just like that blue I put up on the map a while ago. But also, since Latin is the language of the Romans, they also spoke a lot of Latin in the Roman Empire, especially out on the West End, where you see here we put the old Latin translation shows up uh, in the early second century. And by the way, the way that we know about this is because of this survival of manuscripts, handwritten copies of translations, not just handwritten copies of the Greek Testament, but handwritten copies of the translations from the Greek Testament. Now, some of the translations I'm going to point out here, all of them were the New Testament. Some of them also included the Old Testament. And by the way, those who included, or those which included the Old Testament, mostly were translated from the Septuagint, not from the Hebrew. So let me put a few up here. In the third century, we go to the year 200 and a little beyond now. In the year 200, down in Egypt is the Coptic translation. Then we have to go past the year 300 into the fourth century, and we find there the Gothic translation, which is kind of a Germanic language, which is related closely to our own English. Then, a little later, in Syriac, a language spoken north of Palestine, there is a translation made, and there are still manuscripts of these surviving today. Actually, these manuscripts are very few in number compared to the Greek manuscripts, but they do survive. Okay, then as we go into the 5th century, we get past the year 500 or 400 now, uh, another Latin translation is made. Bear in mind, the first one's made back here. It's 300, 400 years later, they make another one. And that tells me the reason why well, we know the history. Uh, uh, Damasus, the bishop of Rome, which you might call the pope, but maybe not at this early point in history, commissioned a man by the name of Jerome, said, we need to make this translation into better modern Latin, which was modern in the fifth century, and that's what he set out to accomplish. So here's a big step now, though, that Jerome took when he translated the New Testament and Old Testament from the original languages into Latin. It's important to, to see this distinction. Just like we would expect, he translated the New Testament from Greek, and uh, this was the old Latin translation. Here's the way the old one was done. Uh, the new was translated from Greek into old Latin in the second century, and, but not the original Hebrew. Instead, it was translated from the Septuagint into the old Latin. Okay, now, in the fifth century, in the new Latin, in the Vulgate translation it is called, what did Jerome do except he said, no, I'm going to skip a step here. I am not going to translate this from the Septuagint. I'm going to go straight from the original Hebrew. And that was revolutionary. That was radical at that time. So radical, in fact, that it caused riots in the cities of North Africa when his new Latin translation was read to the people. And one of the reasons was is because he skipped the step here of using the Septuagint translation, which resulted in a little bit different wording in some places, and this caused riots, if you can imagine. And the riots were so significant that Augustine, and that's St. Augustine, wrote a letter to Jerome. And he said this, 
My only reason for objecting to the public reading of your translation from the Hebrew in our churches was, lest bringing forward anything which was, as it were, new and opposed to the authority of the Septuagint, we should trouble, by reason, by serious cause of offense, the flocks of Christ, whose ears have become accustomed to listen to that version to which all the apostles themselves gave approval. Now here's what he's saying. He's got two reasons why that this new translation can't be, can't be good. Number one, the people's ears are not accustomed to it. And number two, you've skipped the Septuagint and the apostles used the Septuagint. Now what about that argument? Should we be translating the Old Testament from the Septuagint because the apostles did? Well, I don't think anyone here tonight believes that. We want our Old Testament translated directly from the Hebrew. And it was Jerome who made that possible. It was Jerome who had the nerve to step out and do that. And we're very thankful that he did that. We certainly are, because we do. We want to know what the original scriptures of the Old Testament say so that we may know them from the original in our translations into English. Okay, well, as we move along then, we come then, in still in the 5th century, there's a translation in the Georgian language, then down a little south there in Armenia, then we come to the 6th century, to the year 500 and beyond. And after that, need another one down in Egypt, where there is another dialect of people who need a translation into Nubian, and then in the 7th century, a little past the year 600, Ethiopic. That language gets a translation. Then Aramaic. Isn't that interesting? The New Testament is now translated into Aramaic, the language of the Jews and the first century church. And that happens in the, sixth, uh, in the seventh century. In the eighth century, and this is interesting too, in the eighth century, does anybody, I'm not asking for a show of hands, but I'm just going to pose a rhetorical question here. Does anyone know what happened in the 8th century that might call forth another translation? Well, Muhammad came on the scene down in Arabia. And when he came on the scene down in Arabia after he died, the influence of Islam mushroomed out across North Africa and all over the place. And you know what? We don't know who they were. They aren't famous by name. But somebody said when that all started to happen, how close am I getting? Seven minutes. Seven minutes. I'm almost there. Uh, when that came, uh, when that happened, there were some, as far as I know, nameless people who translated the New Testament into Arabic and preached to the people through the preaching, through rather the reading, uh, the translation into the Arabic language. Then up here is a language, Sogdian. I don't know anything about Sogdian, but it's up there east of the Caspian Sea where those people spoke that language. Then in the ninth century, uh, way up north, the Slavonic language. And then finally, as we bring it all together here, about the 10th century, that's about a thousand years ago. And as I told you, the English language is about a thousand years old. Uh, really a little older than that, but... Um, in the 10th century, Anglo-Saxon was when the English translation really started to come into focus. Now, there were some hints of it in the 7th and 8th centuries, but uh, it was really in the 10th century that we find the English language. And you, would not, you wouldn't recognize Anglo-Saxon. If we had that Anglo-Saxon translation, it's English, but it would have to be translated into modern English for us to understand it. 
Well, so that kind of brings us up to the English Bible. And I put my year zero way out here to the left now so that we can show the first century here and then through all of these centuries of time, all of these languages received the word of God. Now, does that mean that everyone who read those translations necessarily knew and believed the truth? Not necessarily, because we know, of course, that that's not the case even today. But there were lots of people reading it, and there were lots of people copying it. There were lots of people translating it into these languages until we find the very first beginnings of our own language in Anglo-Saxon around the 10th century, like I said. So this kind of brings me up to the close, really, of this series of lessons. And the next one uh, that I had in the series goes on with the history of the Bible in English. Now, I think these things are important because I think that everything that we can know about the Bible helps us understand what's in the Bible. That's really what we all want to do, is we want to understand what's in the Bible. But we have to understand, I believe, something about the context of that book and how it came into our hands, where it came from, how it got here. And all of that is part of the context. You know, context is not just those few verses around a particular passage we're trying to understand. That's immediate context. The paragraph's a bigger context. The chapter's a bigger context. The book is a bigger one. The Testament, the whole Bible, and then the context in which the whole Bible came about and the context in which the whole Bible has been preserved and the context in which the whole Bible has been passed down and the context in which the whole Bible has now been made available to us today, I believe, is part of the picture part of the puzzle, as it were, of understanding the teaching of the Word of God and what's in it. So I'm going to stop there. I guess I'm probably about out of time.